Then we move into what I call the danger zone, which is about that 40 to 80 foot area where I can't throw the ball as hard as I can. And I also can't lob the ball or keep a nice, easy arm action. I've got to start letting it go a little bit. Welcome into their episode of Patrick Jones Baseball. Hope you're doing well wherever you're listening at. Um, this intro is going to be pretty short today because I want to get right into the episode with Jason Kuhn. But today we're talking about the yips, the throwing yips, and how to fix them. So I think you're in the right spot if you're a coach who has players who are who have the yips, or maybe you're just a coach who wants to know more about it in case it does happen, and what are some ways to to help out your pitchers or, or position players with it too. This week on my newsletter, The Hitting Chronicle, I am talking about making in-season adjustments. So that's what the topic is. So if you're not already, make sure to subscribe to the newsletter. You can head to PatrickJonesBaseball.com. It's free. Every Tuesday, I send out a, a new article where I talk about hitting when it comes to like the mental side of the game, drills, approach, all that stuff, and it's completely free. So we have over 4,000 coaches signed up on the email list. So PatrickJonesBaseball.com, sign up for the Hitting Chronicle newsletter. Okay, here we go, Jason Kuhn. This is the future, this is my time, I grind and shine. I put in the work and push the line. Okay, Jason, we're now live on the podcast. appreciate you coming on today, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. So for, for everyone listening out there, I want to set the stage. All right, this is Jason Kuhn. He, and, and after I get done rolling out the red carpet for you here, correct me if I'm wrong on anything, okay? So Jason played college baseball, Middle Tennessee State University, was a pitcher, very good pitcher. His senior year, he developed the yips and he threw several wild pitches in a game and you know he went from being you know probably drafted to not even on the travel roster his senior year and so obviously it was, it was devastating to him after you know his career was over in college because it pretty much ended his career he was thinking and, and again correct me if I'm wrong here but he was like man like if, am I mentally weak like what what happened here and he was watching uh, Bud's training about the Navy SEALs, which for those of you who don't know, and I'm sure a lot of you do know, although we do, we have listeners all across the world on here, is basically the most badass people in the world, the Navy SEALs. And so Jason was like, okay, I want to push myself here. I want to see, like, am I really, am I tough enough to get to the Navy SEALs? Because if I am, then I can do anything. And so he ended up becoming a, a Navy SEAL. So clearly the Yips isn't a mental toughness thing because we're sitting here talking with one of the baddest dudes on the planet. And so he ended up, you know, fighting for our country, which appreciate your service for doing that. He ends up, you know, going overseas, serving his time, then coming back. And now he helps players, not just even in baseball, though we'll mainly talk about baseball today, but he helps, you know, golfers and and teams, high school, college teams uh, with performance issues, with just improving performance and and more specifically, which is what we're going to talk about today, the yips. And so Jason is he's the guy who's going to help everyone beat the yips. Did I do a good job there? Uh, yeah, that's that is that's pretty much right on. Yeah, I joined the Navy for several reasons, but that was certainly part of it. Yeah, path for redemption from a failure in baseball, and um, yeah, that was yeah that was uh, that was part of it. But what I realized is when I went through Hell Week, you know, it's very very difficult, and it's it's more of a test of 
mental fortitude than, you know, physical ability. And so when I graduated Hell Week, we had 135 men start our class. We got to Hell Week with 40 something. We came out of Hell Week with 20 and I was one of those 20. And so if I was able to get through that, I proved that at least that point in my life, I was had a lot of mental fortitude and was mentally tough, but I still had the yips with a baseball in my hand. Wow. So if I still couldn't throw a baseball, but I was mentally tough, then the yips cannot be due to a lack of mental toughness. So that's, yeah, that that's interesting. Now here's something that I think about quite frequently, and you're the perfect person to, to talk about this with. So this is you, when I was in college, we had something called hell week where we would either first week back to school coach wanted to see like, Hey, who was actually doing stuff over the summer. And he was just laying around, um, drinking and, and eating, eating chips all, all the time. So it would be really challenging. It would be. And, but when you would, when I remember finishing it, like the feeling of accomplishment, the feeling of, of my confidence and each year, my times got a little bit faster and better, but you look on social media and the strength conditioning coaches are, are bashing hell week, uh, because you know, it doesn't necessarily increase their strength or their running speed, which I get from a science standpoint, but what they don't quantify is it does help with your mental toughness. And I really do believe that. Um, is that something that, that you believe in too? Like, do you think going through buds training, um, hell week, the real hell week with Navy SEALs, uh, changed you as, as an athlete and as a person? Certainly enhanced me. Yeah, absolutely. And I learned a lot of things about performance going through training and then later on experiencing combat that I wish I had had a better understanding of as a player because I it would have enhanced my ability to play well and prolong my career on into the professional ranks for sure. Hell Week is, you know, you to, to build trust within each other, you go through hard things together and you learn how to apply attention to detail. You know, performance is simply an ability to execute fundamentals under stress and fundamentals are controllable actions of value. And understanding that they exist not only in how you execute action, but also in how you choose to think and how you interact with your teammates. And those working together produce best possible outcome, consistent performance, so on and so forth. And that's what, you know, amongst several other things, Hell Week is designed for. And we are training for war, okay, which is different than sports. However, I believe the fundamentals of winning are the same. Combat is a competitive environment. It's just the ultimate one because the stakes are life and death. So there's a lot of emotional attachment that goes into it. And if you can learn to execute under the extreme pressures there, you can apply them to any other competitive environment as well. And that's what I share with athletes on the performance side. And that plays into how we train through the yips as well. But the yips also involves throwing and several other things too. So it's two separate training programs. I, re I remember listening to you on a podcast or on YouTube, I believe, and you you, you made a point that when you picked up a, a grenade, you were getting ready to throw a grenade and you it, the flashback of the yips came back to you. Is that true? Yeah, slightly. Somebody asked me that question once. And so it was just very, very slightly. I thought about it, but it didn't really affect me. I was able to throw it properly and everything was fine. But I did have the thought very briefly, uh, you know, kind of what if and but I, it was fine. So if you could go back, Jason, to your senior year in college and, and talk to yourself and and do whatever you want, every whatever you needed to do to in order to beat the yips, knowing what you know now, like what specifically would you do with yourself? Knowing what I know now? Yeah. Well, I'd have my identity and ego grounded more foundationally. So that's one thing we do with players is, you know, for me growing up, 
I felt like an underdog. I felt overlooked a lot. And baseball was where I was going to stick it to everybody and overcome the adversities of my personal life. And I loved the game, was desperate to keep playing it. And I was dependent on the game for my sense of self-worth. And there's a part of me that will always be a baseball player. There's a part of me that will always be a SEAL. And I value those things greatly as part of my identity. But the difference as a baseball player was that word dependency. I really had a big dependency on it for my self-worth. And so I learned when I failed, I had a really hard time. And it got pretty dark for a while. And I was just broken. And I tried everything. You know, I tried psychology. I tried all the traditional methods, relaxation, visualization. None of it works. And then I went out and I tried to throw and I threw for hours, uh, hours. I just threw and I threw and I threw and I threw and I threw until I could hardly move my arm anymore. I was more inaccurate at the end than I was the beginning. And I couldn't even, I could hardly get my elbow up above my shoulder anymore. And in that moment I was just defeated and didn't know what to do with myself and turned to booze and everything else to distract myself and woke up one day in the hallway of my dorm room, face down, clothes still on, drool all over the floor I peeled my face up off the carpet. I couldn't remember the last three days. And I thought, man, this thing happened to you. It is what it is. Is it going to define who and what you're going to be for the rest of your life? And I knew in that moment I needed to make a change. But I also didn't know what to change because I'd done so many things right. You know, and uh, but I stopped. I prayed. I was still. I said, Jesus, help me. And I had peace. I still couldn't throw. I was still confused and frustrated. And I said, why? Like, why did this happen? If I could just wrap my head around the purpose of it, then I could move forward. And I felt these words on my heart, just wait, something better is coming for you. Now, I didn't understand what that was, but I had faith in that moment that there was purpose to what I was going through because I thought that I had lost my purpose in life. I was destined to be a baseball player. And I was just going to drift through life in some lesser existence. But when I stopped viewing the circumstances having taken my purpose and I started viewing it as having purpose for me to be forged into a more capable person, is when everything changed. And so I learned a phrase that helped me a lot. What I do shouldn't define who I am. Who I am should define what I do. Because I knew if I if I went into the Navy with the same mentality I had in baseball with a really high attrition rate in the SEAL teams, I'd probably get the same result. So I uh, rather than being dependent on success in the profession for my sense of self-worth, I allowed my sense of self-worth to create my success within the profession. And in that moment, in that room, I, you know, I'd been so focused on all the things that went wrong and all the hardships of life and the people who helped contribute to that. And so far focused forward on the draft that I forgot who I was, you know, the kid playing baseball and I stopped playing baseball, started trying at it. And that's when everything went wrong. And um, so I started thinking about the good things, some of the no hitters, the game winning hits, standing my ground and fighting as a kid. And I thought to myself, you know, you are tough, man. You don't need anybody's validation of that. Just be grounded in the truth of it, but channel it into service of team and mission. So I looked two places I hadn't looked yet. I looked at God and I looked internally to learn what I needed to learn about myself and realized that, you know, victimhood produces more victimhood. Self-pity is a worthless emotion and an effort to win, no matter how justified it may be. I needed to look internal. What parts of myself need to die? What parts are strong and need to continue to be strengthened so that I get up stronger than I got knocked down and more resilient. And I think that situation helped make me someone capable of getting through the difficulties of hell week buds and later on in war. So having that grounded, you know, I call it a who, what, why. I have players write out, who are you? Three character traits that are true about yourself. 
and write out a what, what is your mission and a why, what's your purpose driving forward? So we have an identity that is grounded internally versus dependent on external sources. So I was, I was listening to you talk about, um, Tyler Matzik. And I, then I, you know, I ended, I ended up going and watching an interview on, on him. And one of the things he had talked about kind of what you're just describing right there is, is the why. And more specifically, he, he used the word love a few times too. And yeah. how, you know, you like incorporating like love into, into the why as well. Could you, could you talk about why that is so important? Yeah. So I believe that we reach a higher level of performance by focusing on more or focusing more on others than ourselves. So every day we show up, we're driven by one of two things, status or service. Status means I want to be a big deal, receive praise from other people. There's nothing wrong with that. And it can be very motivating, but it, it ultimately drives failure because for me to be a big deal, I'm dependent on other people thinking I'm a big deal, but I can't control what anybody thinks about me. And if my self-worth and identity is attached to something that I can't control and can constantly change, that creates pressure, stress, and that makes me tight. And where I want to be is relaxed, but focused with a controlled ag aggression. And a lot of times that status-driven mentality is not out of arrogance. It can be. But a lot of times for most people, it's out of a need for affirmation or validation from other people. And we all need that to a degree. But when it evolves into a dependency is where it hinders our ability to perform. And I learned that about myself in sniper school. I went as a new guy and, and a lot of the guys there were veteran operators and I looked up to them. I was struggling with a test and one of the instructors came up. He said, hey, man, I've seen you shoot on your own and you understand what to do. You're capable. But when you get around the other dudes, you suck. Mm. And it's because of the company that you're in and you're getting nervous because you look up to these guys. And he said a couple of things that were very valuable. He said, if you don't believe in yourself, why should anybody else? Kind of goes back to that identity again. Right. And he said, you know, we have two wars. We need snipers. You're capable, but we're not going to be able to make use of your capability because you're more concerned with gaining the acceptance of your peers than simply embracing your God-given best and giving it to the team. And I passed the test the next day. I tried to focus on one shot at a time. I tried to let my motivation be in service to the team and have conviction that there's purpose to whatever outcome that I receive. Kind of like when I was broken in that dorm room there, you know, I started, hey, there's purpose to what I'm going through here. What value can be gained from it? And that helps us fear it less. When we have a service-based mentality, it doesn't just enhance the team because that's what people do, work together as a team. But the underlying question, especially as you move up the ranks where there's money involved and everything else, well, what's in it for me, right? Or in the corporate setting. So we have to understand how it increases the individual, the individual player's ability to perform, to gain buy-in from them. And the way that works is I think that a team-first mentality has two performance principles. One it reduces fear or anxiety. And two, it creates trust and love, which are the greatest motivators of aggression. So the way it reduces fear and anxiety is if we're getting our, call it a ready room, it's like a locker room and we're getting our guns and gear on, getting ready to go. And I start having the thoughts of, hey, what if I get killed or something out here? That is based off of self-concern. What's going to happen to me? So that anxiety is like a parasite feeding off self-concern or misplaced concern. If I defer my concern, to the well-being of teammate and mission, that anxiety has got nothing to latch onto, nothing to grab on. And as we act in that manner, we then create trust and love within each other. And a lot of teams will put brotherhood and family or whatever on their locker room signs and in their core values, but you have to live it in order to feel it. It works in that order and that order only. And when you do, it's very powerful. And that's part of the purpose of Hell Week, uh, of Hell Week as well, okay, is to create that within each other 
And I, I'll give people the example, like, hey, you can come fight me. And if you win the fight, you can have the status of being more badass than a seal. And you took me down. Would you fight me? Most people won't do it. And then I'll say, well, what if I had the person you love the most in this world behind me and you had to come through me to get to them? Would you fight me now? Everybody raises their hand. So the situation or the problem didn't change, just the motivation behind the problem. And one, you won't fight because you're fighting for status and self-gain. And the other, you will because you're fighting for something greater than yourself. But that feeling didn't pop out of thin air with magic. It was created by meeting an expectation and a standard over the course of time. That's powerful stuff, man. That's really powerful stuff. And it's something that I think I've felt over the years because there's been times where even as a player, like I'm, I'm more so worried about myself and getting, you know, getting hits and, you know, getting playing time and, you know, drafted, whatever it is, versus there's been a few times where it was kind of accidental. Like I didn't really, it didn't really click kind of what you're talking about of, of, you know, buying in with the team. Like I always heard that, but it just never, I don't know if it, it wasn't explained or I just, I don't know. I just never clicked, but the older I've gotten, the more I, I've understood, like you, you will actually play better. Your, your stats, if that's what we're talking about, will actually be better by you not focusing on you, you focusing on the team. And I think that's something that is, is really powerful. Once, once that really clicks for players, um, I think it's, it's, it's a game changer. I've heard multiple big league players talk about that before too. Um, so, yeah, I, I think what you're saying is 100% spot on. Awesome. And it's just, yeah, it's just understanding how it works and then explaining it to the players so they understand it in order to gain buy-in from them. And if you look at, you know, a couple of the interviews from Tyler when he came into, I believe it was the NLCS. Now, versus- oh, yeah. For those who don't know, so Jason worked with Tyler Matzik. Tyler, you know, great left-handed pitcher for the Atlanta Braves, won a World Series. He had He had the yips and was actually out of baseball, like completely for um, a little bit, and then started working with with Jason. I mean, the the media has put out a lot of content, if anyone's interested in, in learning more, I'll put actually a couple of the links in the show notes. But I just wanted to set the stage so people knew who, who Tyler was. Yeah, yeah. And so if you look at one of those interviews, uh, or listen to Tyler talk, he'll talk about how he came into that game. And this is more performance related than yip specific. Uh, he wasn't struggling with the yips at this point. But to prove... Uh, you know, the narrative of the team first mentality and how it increases individual performance. I believe it was Luke Jackson had come in before him and struggled, left runners on base, perhaps had given up the runs. I can't remember the specifics. So, but it was something like that. I think it was four to two with runners on base. Tyler comes in in the eighth inning and he strikes out three in a row. And he talks in those interviews about how his motivation was to pick up Luke. Luke was one of his best friends. And he's like, hey, he deserved better than that. I wasn't going to let this happen to him. And his motivation was his teammate. He wasn't thinking about, okay, am I going to fail or whatever? It was just, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do this for him. And it's very powerful. Very powerful. And I would say it's it's pretty hard to do uh, in professional baseball, even in, in college baseball at times too, when, Hey, if you don't produce, you're not playing, right? You're not going to go to that next level. So I think it's, it's very impressive that a tower was able to do that. I was listening to Tyler talk, in an interview. And and one of the things he said that for him, the yips, he had trouble playing catch and he had trouble throwing fastballs. He said he could do anything else, but those are the two things with the yips. Why why is it specific things? 
like Tyler said, those were for specific for him, but he said that there's other people. It's, you know, making a throw across the infield. It's throwing their breaking ball. It's, you know, different things. Is there a reason why specific things jump out and, and that's what, what causes it? It just depends. It depends on the position they play and how all this is coming together. So cause and effect, I have identified a few common denominators and, you know, we could spend the whole show on that, you know? Yeah. but um Playing catch is typically where you'll see it. There are some guys who can play catch, can't throw on the mound. There's guys that uh, can't throw on the mound but can play catch and and whatever else. But the solutions, I think, are more important than, you know, the specific situation. But typically guys are good up close, okay? And And that's where most people struggle there or in the dynamic situation of making the throw across the infield, throwing the ball back to the pitcher or um, the pitcher on the mound throwing to a catcher is where you see it most common. And I think that in between throw is very difficult to make. You know, it's I, I believe it's the hardest throw to make in baseball. And I haven't studied the data if there, if there is any out there, but I would imagine, you know, if you turn on a game today, you're probably going to see more, you know, a pitcher throw away the ball to first or a catcher throw away a ball to first or a second baseman to first base or something more so than you're going to see those longer, harder throws where guys can come through and cut it loose, right? So it's just when the tension hits, it's not something that's voluntary. It's not a rational psychological problem where the player feels afraid. Most players, in fact, every player I've spoken to, to include myself, when they first experienced the yips, did not feel an elevated level of anxiety or fear they run out the throw and the ball just sailed on them and they didn't understand why. The anxiety is a byproduct of having made an inaccurate throw, not understanding why it happened, being afraid it's going to happen again and not having a solution for it if it does. And that creates a tremendous amount of anxiety. And that's where I think that sports psychology is missing the mark is they're treating the anxiety, but they're not getting to the root foundational issue of what's causing it. What's usually causing it? So I define the yips as involuntary tension, okay, is the simple definition. So there's tension, literal muscle tension happening through the arm, and it's a subconscious initiation. Okay, so it's a subconscious initiation of tension that creates a mechanical interruption in the delivery of the throw. As they come forward to make the throw, there's two muscle groups that run through our arm. One's responsible for extension of the wrist, and one's responsible for making it tight. And like, a, like I'm going to throw a punch, okay? And as we as we go to throw or to swing a golf club, we need to engage the muscle group responsible only for extending the wrist. But what's happening is the central nervous system is perceiving a threat. And I believe that's due to past experiences. Everybody experiences general adversities in the game, all right? From bad weather to a bad call to whatever it may be. But then you throw in the anomalies. Perhaps scholarship money that was promised is pulled. Perhaps this, that, or the other thing. And then as you move up the ranks in baseball, one, the, the, it's harder to maintain your career at the higher levels because the talent is better. And the, when the window's closing, you know, your timeline for playing baseball is closing. And then the, the consequences of success or failure escalate in terms of, you know, when you're, when you're outside with your dad throwing, when you're a kid, every little thing is rewarded, Right. And then things become to be, become expected, you know, get the bunt down, throw strikes, catch the ball, whatever. And you, it, it, the, the consequences escalate in 
and what's at stake. You know, originally it's just your own satisfaction or dissatisfaction. You know, when you're out there by yourself as a kid and then it grows from there, millions of dollars, whatever. Then you throw in an injury. Then you throw in whatever, social media piled on top of it. And it's never one thing, but the central nervous system starts to perceive certain environments as a threat. And that's why you may be able to see one a player throw in this situation, but not that situation. And as they go to throw, the subconscious says threat. So if I were to throw a punch at you right now, unexpectedly in that room, you're going to react in some way. And what you're probably going to do, say I threw it at your chest, you're going to make your chest muscles tight to absorb the blow. That's the body's self-defense mechanism, right? It's to protect the vital organs. You're not going to tell yourself to or not to, it's just going to happen. Well, I believe the same thing is occurring as you go to throw. It's, it's perceiving a threat and it's typically getting players from as the elbow comes forward by the ear out to release an extension. And it can be a little bit or it can be a lot. So there's a literal contraction in the forearm and they're engaging both muscle groups at the same time. So if you want to know what the yips feels like and you've never experienced it, you just make your hand tight and your wrist tight and forearm tight and try to throw the ball. But now imagine that it's just happening at the last second and you're not telling yourself to do that. See, if you do it now, you're doing it intentionally. But when it happens to a player, it's it's involuntary. So as they do, the hand gets tight. The first thing that happens is typically the ball will sail way high in arm side. The player sees that happen. They're like, what in the world was that? And so, okay, well, I need to extend through that. And they try to extend through it. They don't realize that a mechanical interruption is taking place. I didn't at first. We didn't have cameras like we have now. I just thought I was following through way over here, way over there, and just couldn't figure out what was going on. I didn't realize there was a mechanical interruption taking place. But it's not as simple as saying, hey, stay over the rubber longer or stride out a little further, because those are all intentional initiations of that action. Does that make sense? Yeah, so this is perfect, because I think – a lot of times when players start failing, hitting, pitching, whatever, the first thing they, they go to is mechanics. And so is it that when they when this happens, is it the first thing that they go to here is like, oh, my mechanics are a little bit off. I need to work on my mechanics when that's actually not the root cause. Correct. So there is it is a mechanical issue. It's but also, it's not because of it's because they're they're mentally. Yeah, not that. Yeah. Right, and it's not because they're afraid to throw the ball either or because they're mentally weak. OK, right. it's. um. So as they go and they try to extend through that release, the hand is still tight. And then the, the only thing is, if it doesn't squirt out, they, they wrap around the side of it because the hand's getting stiff and they can't, they can't drive their fingers through the ball and it comes around the side. And that's where you see it get the slider spin or the spikes into the feet where it goes low and glove side, okay? Or anything in between those, those two extremes. So um, well, I kind of got off track there. What, 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 was, what was the question? <laughs> Oh no, we were. I was just talking about like specifically, you know, when when players do feel like, let's just say you're in the moment and you start to to feel like, hey, you make a throw and it's way off, like something happened, the, and this happens. I don't care what anybody says. Like, I I legitimately think, and I'm sure you've done more, you've thought more about this than me, but I think every player goes through this at some point. For some, it may just be one throw and warmups and then they don't even think about it. And I think for others, it can pr prolong or end their career. But I think at some point everyone goes through at least a little bit of it. I mean, would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. So let's say you make that bad throw and then you get publicly shamed for it. Right. And then maybe it's even hands-on coach goes hands-on with you or something like that. And then, and then right after that you get injured and then right after you've seen it all. And then you have yeah. some challenging things happen in your personal life. And then maybe the club says, Hey, you know, we want to, 
you got a few months here left and if you don't, you know, whatever, and you don't improve, then you know, it all starts to pile up and it creates this subconscious kind of underlying fear that we're not even, that we're not, not, not on the mound, on the mound, you can still be aggressive. It's kind of this underlying fear. And I, I, I relate it to post-traumatic stress. It's not exactly the same, I don't think, but it's similar. So I almost drowned once off the side of a submarine. I got trapped under a boat in a thunderstorm and we were getting ready to jump out of a helicopter into the ocean about three weeks later. It's not all that dangerous casting, we call it. And it's a lot of fun. I've done it a bunch of times and we we're in the helicopter and that's people have post-traumatic stress is very misunderstood as well. So it, I uh, was on the helicopter and the ramp came down and then everything in my body started lighting off. You know, my heart rate started increasing. My things started getting tense. Now here I was fine. And I remember kind of smiling what's going on and what's happening there is my central nervous system is saying, hey, this is a situation that is similar to one that almost killed you, water, ocean, right? And you need to pay attention to it right now. And the body's um, self-preserving instincts light off to protect yourself. So I think a very similar thing is occurring when the player gets out there on the field and then it hits them and they're not asking for it to hit or not to hit. It just, it just happens. So we have to engage it and train through it. And that's the key is, yes, it is a mechanical interruption, but it's not as simple as saying, hey, you're doing this. Like, I know I'm doing that, but I can't stop myself from doing it. And that was what was I, I kind of figured that out when I, I threw six wild pitches in an inning in college. The record for pitches in a game was seven. So I threw six in an inning. <laughs> now I kind of wish I'd broken the record in that inning, you know, years later, at least. The, but uh, the uh, so so to the point of that, my. My catcher, who's my best friend, my roommate, came out to the mound. I was beyond I, – I didn't care about being embarrassed anymore or, or anything. I just wanted to solve this. I, I, I didn't care what anybody thought. I did originally when I was first going through it. it. It was awful, but I was beyond that now. And he came out and he said, hey, man, you know, uh, just relax, take a deep breath. I'll, he's trying his best. And I, I said, hey, bud, let's just turn towards center field so, you know, nobody in the crowd could see us. I said, bud, I'm not nervous. I'm not afraid. And I looked at my arm. I was like, I just can't make my arm do what it's supposed to do. I said, well, you keep on throwing them then, good buddy, and I'll keep on going and getting them. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we did. But um, yeah, so it, it's not quite as simple. It is a mechanical issue, but it's not as simple as saying, hey, just do this and not that. So if you're if you're a coach out there listening to this, um, what, what should they do, right? If they see a player it's having an issue and it's during the game, it's during the season. It's, it's like, man, like how, how should they go about approaching that? And I, and I, the reason I asked that is I, um, I know we were connected through Michael McHenry's awesome guy. I've had him on the podcast. Um, we also had Mike Rebello on the podcast. Who's the third base coach for the pirates too. He was, he's a great coach. And one of the things he talked about on the podcast is one time he had a guy who was struggling um, with just fielding ground balls. I think it was his backhand. And so he said he made sure that he brought him out the next day and he worked everywhere. He worked glove side. He worked back side, uh, backhand, everything, because he didn't want the guy to 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 know that everyone knew he needed to work on his backhand, right? Where it was like he made a couple bad errors with his backhand. Like he didn't want to go out there and be like, hey, we're only going to work on your backhand today because – we know you're struggling, right? And exactly, and make this make it an emphasis on that, which I think is is was really smart, kind of, and and you know piggyback some of the things that you're talking about. So if you do have a guy who is struggling, I, mean, I guess that's one way of going about it. But 
what would be something that comes to the top of your mind when you see a player initially struggling and you're a coach during a game or practice? Well, the first thing is to identify what it is. And that's what I do with players initially is, is this the yips or not as, as we define it as involuntary tension. Okay. And I can tell typically watching a player, whether that is, is, or isn't, but if they're, because there is also, you know, I think performance anxiety is a separate thing. Okay. And I have a system for that. where We talk about free yourself from the requirement of the outcome, how to be grateful, spark confidence through self-talk and whatever else. And, we use that for hitters. We use that. That's more of a rational awareness of the environment and understanding what's at stake. And I'm getting nervous and I need to regain my composure. Okay. That's a different thing. So if that's the case, there's a way to go about that. But if it's the yips, it's something else. And so the first thing is just honoring it for what it is. Baseball has this unneeded taboo view on it. And it's because people don't under, understand it. And we're afraid of what we understand or don't understand. And so just honoring it for what it is. And then given a lot of times the player just doesn't have the ability or the freedom to work through it in the way that they need to. So taking ownership of it, and it doesn't mean we have to go like stand on top of a building and shout, I have the yips or anything like that, or even call it the yips. That's the slang term for this issue that we're describing the involuntary attention. Hey, I'm having accuracy issues. Okay. But why? And then because we got to define the problem and understand it first to get an effective solution. And that's where the issue in this really, really lies, is I think that the problem itself is vastly misunderstood. So we're providing solutions to the problem. Okay? Giving them free fail, giving them love and empathy, and holding them accountable, not necessarily to the outcome, but to so what we have to fight for is quality releases when we get into my training program, because the quality release produces an act and um an accurate throw in that order. And we want to channel the effort that a player is giving into gaining that quality release and backspin on the ball, no matter where the ball goes and allowing them to the freedom to fail through that for a little while as they build through it. So what I'll do is, so what I did wrong is I went out and I threw for hours, as I said, you know, until I couldn't throw anymore. And the thing was, I, I was on the right idea of, of throwing, but I wasn't throwing with a plan. I was throwing in the same condition. So we got to reduce the environmental conditions and the distance into a capacity in which the player can throw and start retraining the subconscious to trust free dexterity again in that throw. But if they're constantly throwing in a live situation, they're just feeding the monster. So when we try to hide it, we empower it. When we try to pawn it off on something else like an injury, which we all do from time to time because it's embarrassing and we don't understand it, like maybe that is it or whatever, we empower it. So it's taking ownership of it. Okay, yes, I have this problem. Kind of like an alcoholic. You got to admit you're an alcoholic, you know, in order to start defeating it and, and admit you have a problem and then start training it. And the training takes place more in throwing when I work with players and a throwing progression than it does with mindset, although mindset is involved with it. And there's some key aspects there. And um, certain things like placing your value on those who love you for who you are, not what you do, player identity and establishing that. Uh, but when it comes to mental toughness, confidence, and things that I teach on the performance side, those are more to help the player go battle this each and every day and have the mental fortitude to get out there because it takes a while and it's hard and it's frustrating, but those aren't the solutions for the yips itself necessarily. They're a part of the solution, right? The throwing and the progression of the throwing 
and then reintroducing the environmental conditions gradually according to the player's threshold. And that, that's different for each player. For me, it would have been nobody around just trying to stand on the beach and throw the ball into the water, you know, <laughs> when I was really, right, really yeah. bad. And for others, hey, I can I can throw out to about 20 feet with people around and um, and I'm good. But when I get past that, that's where my threshold is or whatever it is. So, you know, we'll stop and we'll pull the player back. And the first thing we want to do is so that mechanical interruption is taking place from here to here. So separation, everything here normally is fine. OK, and that's where we start attacking it. But the so it's a subconscious problem. And the conscious mind or I like to think of it like this is uh, the intentional and automated part of your being. OK, the intentional part of our mind can only solve one problem at a time. And if my problem is from here to here, what I do is I center my focus. I feel the seam on my finger. That's the number one thing. Feel that seam on your finger and be ground, ground your focus on feeling the seam roll off of your fingers. And that's where that's where we start. So let me give you an example. When you fire a gun, I'll just use my cell phone, okay? Because this is this is very it's, it's the exact same thing that's happening in my opinion. When you fire a gun and you're first learning, especially a pistol, you'll dry fire. You shoot without any rounds in the gun. The gun just goes click. You don't move it at all. Click, click, click. You put a live round in the gun. Now two things are going to happen. One, there's going to be an outcome. The bullet is going to go somewhere. And two, there's an explosion taking place in your hands. And as you press the trigger, you know, you, you, you're, you're in your, in your conscious mind, you're saying, don't flinch, do everything the same way, except the recoil. Your subconscious says, Hey, there's an explosion taking place in your hands. You need to prepare for it. And the reason why people miss even very good shooters is as they press that trigger, they flinch just a little bit tension in the forearms, hands, fingers, and just a little bit of movement on those sights with a pistol and a short barrel makes the bullet miss disproportionately according to what that tension, just a little bit of tension can throw it way off because you got to have complete dexterity. So we were training with competition shooters and the SEAL teams, and we asked them, how do you override that? What do you do? They said, we dry fire 75% more than we shoot with live rounds in the gun to train the subconscious to believe that when we press that trigger, nothing is happening. Wow. And when we get into a dynamic setting, that's what it defaults to. And in some ways, your body is reacting appropriately. There is an explosion. There is a threat. When you're on the baseball field, there is a threat. There's the threat of failure and the consequences involved there. There is the threat of embarrassment, so on and so forth. Okay, It's just responding Again, disproportionately according to what that threat is. I can handle that recoil. It's just a big loud boom, but I can't handle it, right? And the same thing on the on the field to say, hey, there is threat out there, but it's responding disproportionately to what it is. Saying protect yourself. The body's natural response to protect itself is tightness and tension. So it's trying to help you, but having the opposite effect. So Make it's sense? all about rewiring the subconscious mind. I believe so. Yeah. It's a rehabilitation program. I treat it like an injury. Like if you pulled your hamstring. You're going to go get ice and taped, but you're not going to go steal second base the next day. And that's right. typically what players do. They go in, they they start struggling with the yips. Everybody sees it. They go to the mental skills coach. They get basic visualization and relaxation techniques. That helps them a little bit in warm-ups. But when they get into more dynamic scenario, it's too much to override. They don't have the tools for it, and it doesn't work. They basically, metaphorically, they're getting that ice and tape and then getting thrown right back into a live scenario, and they haven't rebuilt the strength mm -hmm that they need yet to handle the environmental conditions.
Um, it's like, it's no different than working on your swing in the sense of, Hey, you need to, you need a swing overhaul, right? You're not going to just go into the game and just completely try a new swing. You're going to start off the tee probably, and then flips and soft toss and then batting practice. And eventually, once you get all those down, you're going to eventually progress into, you know, inner squad and then the game. It's the same thing. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, if you have a player out there in PFP and he's struggling, you know, that's where you see it's like a breeding ground for the yips. You stand there for like 10 minutes you know, and then you get up there on the mound and you throw a pitch into the plate. Did you, did you say breed, breed, did you say breeding ground for the yips? <laughs> yeah, it can be depending on how it's set up. Uh, you know, say you throw a pitch in and then maybe it sails over the catcher. It's not a yip throw, just an accurate one because you haven't thrown the ball for a minute. And then, you know, you get a ground ball back to you. And then so the player's struggling with the yips and then, you know, you're like, hey, just relax and or, or hey, make a good throw, you know, whatever. You just keep putting, keep doing, you keep doing the same thing over and over again. All right, so what we do is, I'll start with extension drills. We just, we start right here, finger on the seam, and we just start snapping through the ball. And we just start getting that feeling back. And every time we're just spinning that ball, getting backspin on it. And every time that ball comes out properly, we reward that feeling. Reward it. Just like that feeling when you're a kid out there playing with your dad and you catch a pop-up. It's a good job, buddy. Right? And you start to reassociate that with good. And then we reverse engineer. So I had come home from a deployment. So I've been in combat at this point, you know, whatever. And I still couldn't throw a ball well. And it bothered me. And I was, I picked up, a, there was always a baseball around. I was at my parents' house. They're in the kitchen or something. And I picked up a ball. I was like, I'm just going to throw it into the recliner. And I still was worried I was going to throw it through the window. And I thought, okay, where's it attacking me at? And I, for the first time I sat down and started thinking through this. And I was like, it's attacking me from here to here. So that's where I'm going to start. And I picked the ball up here. I could see it. And I centered my focus on the feeling the seam and feeling the seam roll off my finger. And I just went like that. And it hit the recliner and it felt really good. So I kept doing it. And then I went outside and I kept doing it. And I kept doing it and I kept doing it and I kept doing it. And then started working in the other parts of the throw. Nobody's around. It's just me. And every time I'm feeling that ball come out of my hand properly with a quality release, I'm rewarding that feeling and letting it feel good. And we reverse engineer the throw from end to beginning, flowing into two things, the full throw and then into the distance. And then once we get into distance and the tension hits, because that's involuntary, right? That kind of tingly sensation, I could feel it all the way down on my ankles. Now, initially you don't feel that. That happens after you start yipping the ball and you start getting that real tight feeling and everything else. Um, so was, I, when I, I was in, we were in inner squads, I struck out two and had a ground ball back to me. And I don't think I threw a ball anywhere that I didn't want to that entire outing. The next outing, I walked the bases loaded and walked a run or two in, but I didn't, uh, um, and I didn't throw a single strike. And I knew that day something was off. I didn't know what it was, but I was like, something weird happened and I couldn't figure it out. I wasn't missing the catcher. I was just missing the strike zone. And then it evolved into playing catch. Came out the next day, whatever, you know, let it go. Throwing at my buddy, throwing at my buddy. And about the sixth or seventh throw, I threw one 10 feet over his head. Mm -hmm. I, was, I wasn't nervous before I made that throw, but then it starts to set in, right? And you get that really tense feeling. So then I have a system for engaging that as well that I call talking to the tension and then turning on a predator to bring it back down. Because like I said, everybody has this a little bit because you have to have some fear to have focus. If I went into a gunfight with no fear... I wouldn't make tactically sound decisions, but I like to separate the word fear with concern. I need to have concern for the outcome 
otherwise I would just throw the ball anywhere, right? I got to say, I want to throw it to there and I'm satisfied if I do and dissatisfied if I don't. So I think of it like this, if let's say a shortstop in the third inning of a regular season game fields a ground ball and say 15%, I'm just making these up 15% concern and 85% freedom is optimal. And he fields that ground ball, throws it with good hard backspin and hits the first baseman somewhere in the chest. When we're struggling with the yips, that baseline is already starting higher. You're at like a 30-70. And as they go to throw the ball, even in the second or two that it takes, you know, to, to deliver that ball, it's building. And they're at a 50-50 or a complete lockup. I mean, you'll see some guys that can't even get it out of their hand at all, right? So we've got to engage that. How do we bring that back down and then keep it down and maintain that throughout the throw? And then where do we channel our mental focus into? And we channel it into the release and a predator mentality into that release by putting all of our rational conscious focus. We engage the subconscious through conscious effort, right? So to override that defense mechanism, my thought, my, my focus has got to be on my fingers driving through that baseball or feeling the seam leave my fingers or my fingers biting into the seam to produce the rotation. Same thing, just different verbiage guys like better sometimes. And, um, so I have something called talking to the tension and a process to help bring that back down and then maintain it and reverse it into aggression, but then channeling that aggression into the release, not the outcome. And then we work through that. And then something that's designed for dynamic play that I call closing the loop. Tyler calls it as one, two, threes, but that's to take a player from warming up into a live situation. Okay. Because the catcher is going to feel it in the game. You know, we've got, we can escalate it incrementally. We can go from a practice scenario or no people around to people around to a practice scenario, to an inner squad, to a non-conference game, to a conference game, to playoffs. Okay. And there's all sorts of ways to reverse engineer that. So guys in the bullpen, you know, some guys, one of the initiators of it is, you know, they've, they've hit people in the past and that bothers them for whatever reason, you know, back when I played it just, I don't know, nobody cared. It was just a thing, you know, you hit people, it didn't matter, but now I don't know, players seem to struggle with that. And so we'll, once they're clean on the mound and throwing a bullpen and you put a batter in, okay, well, good. Let's hop on the mound and throw, you throw them in an inner squad and they start yipping. Well, we've got to reverse engineer back. Okay. So we go back to the bullpen, find that. So take them, take them out of the inner squad as soon as it happens. Well, maybe not as soon as it happens. It depends on the player. If it's going to shame them or whatever, you know, what whatever you think the right thing to do is. Now, I do think like, you know, when I was throwing for those hours and hours and hours, I had the right idea. I needed to throw. But the problem was every time I made a yip throw and get a bad outcome, your subconscious is perceiving it as, hey, when you try to throw something bad happens, protect yourself even more. And you get more tense, I believe, right? And then it just... And then it snowballs and builds off of itself. So we've got to reverse that. And so part of it is the environmental conditions and easing in kind of like that, you know, that pulled hamstring, I'm going to do some 50% sprints and then 75% sprints. So with one young man, what we did in the bullpen was we put in a live batter and he's throwing super clean, put in a live batter, falls apart. We remove the live batter. We put in a dummy batter. He's still yippy, but it's better. We remove the dummy batter. He throws three or four pitches without a dummy batter. We put the dummy batter in. He throws a pitch. We take him out. Throws three or four pitches. We put the dummy batter in. 
Okay, and then you can escalate that as you go or have a live batter stand in, but he's far off the plate. Okay, and he eases into that. And then the next outing, he stands a little closer and then a little closer and a little closer. I like and that. You want to move as fast as you can, but only as fast as you can. And everybody's situation is a little bit different. And I think that's, I'm glad you brought that up. I think that that's maybe a part of the problem is, this is, as you said, it's similar to just a regular injury. I think the hamstring injury is the example you gave earlier. So you can't rush it. You can't force it. And I've I've, I've seen the dummy batters put in and out. Uh, that's the first time I've, I've ever heard of somebody have it in for three pitches and then take it out. And I think that makes perfect sense because it's usually just in or it's out. Uh, but yeah, I, I think, I mean, would you say that's one of the biggest things that, that coaches need to understand is it, it could take maybe you know a week it could take a month you know you don't necessarily know and so you can't force that yes 100 so you're not going to think it away and you're not going to relax it away in somebody's office okay you have to train it away you have to go through but you have to throw with a plan and again there are some the visualization and relaxation and some of those more traditional techniques can be a part of the solution but they're not nearly enough to be a comprehensive solution and that's where my frustration comes in there because these players are losing their careers and they're questioning their own mental fortitude and everything else in it and, and and it shouldn't be that way and if you're listening know that you are not mentally weak or anything like that i was a navy seal when i had it tyler matzik's a world series champion and he had it i had an nfl player who played in two super bowl games call he's got it in his golf game so it's high achievers it's it's usually players that are good and care for all the right reasons that end up getting this good for the level at which they play. Okay. And I, and I, they, they typically love the game and um, they don't want to disappoint others, those who have supported their efforts and their genuine, you know, genuine dudes. So yes, you cannot rush it in. My, I tell everybody when they call said, we can do this. And my track record right now, I can't share everyone's names because they're kept confidential because they, we don't want them to lose stock in the draft or, or by college recruiting because of that taboo nature that's associated with it. Right. But I have worked with over 20 players since Tyler in the last year and a half. And, and all of them are good to go at the exception. I'm working the ones I'm working with now, and they're all progressing their way there. They're now mostly baseball and a little bit in golf. What's the and, time frame between uh, those that have had success? So I tell them a realistic time frame to have this completely ironed out. And that's the process I call it is ironed out is a year. Okay. One wow. year, but I'm usually able to get players back on the field and playing within a month or two, if not shorter. And it just depends on the player, sometimes longer. Okay. And using that, using those tools every day, every day, their whole warm up and routine may need to be different than what the team is doing as they rehabilitate themselves. And that's the other thing is coaches need to give them the freedom and the, excuse me, the ability to be able to do that. All right. And um, the fastest I've seen, it was a college catcher, D1 kid, and five five meetings, which was one a week. So it was five weeks. And he called back and he said, hey, man, I'd, I'd love to keep working with you, but it's a lot of time. You know, it's a lot of time and money to invest in. And um, I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I'm completely good. And he is. And he still is. And that's about the quickest that I've seen it. In um, golf, for whatever reason, it seems to go faster. Uh, four for four in golf. And it was real quick. I don't know why that is yet. I, I'll figure it out. But um, in baseball, it does take some time. But let me give you an example. I had a kid at a Power 5 call. He was about ready to quit in January. Coach gave him freedom to fail, said, hey, man, you know, you're going to play, and, and it's okay, and, and we're going to work this out. And he was utilizing the closing the loop 
loop theory. So a, a, a ball's hit to him, you know, and it's 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 good catch plant real rip. And and so he would do that and he's able to get through the games. At first, it wasn't super clean, but it was a lot better. And he just kept getting a little better and a little better and a little better, kept working through it. And then he called it super regionals and he said, Hey man, for the first time, I was able to just field a ground ball and throw it without having to think through, you know, the tools that we're utilizing to gain a quality release. And it felt so good. And he and he did that. And so that was a time frame from January to whenever supers are, I guess early June, late May, something like that, right? Um about the June time frame. And yeah, so yeah. That was that was really inspiring because it is these these young men are in and 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 young ladies in softball are in dark places and I know what it feels like. I've been there. And absolutely what's, what's the youngest you've worked with? Uh 14 or 15. Wow. See, I, I feel like that that's and maybe that's because of all the pressure these days of getting recruited and you know all these showcases and tournaments because uh I would have just guessed that it's not very common in high school players. I've seen it a lot in college and a lot in pro, but not as many in high school. I, I'm not sure why that is, but I guess if you're starting than, to get some guys, yeah. Yeah, it's less than it's less than high school and what I've experienced in high school ages so far. And again, this is just through the guys that I've worked with. Um, it's it's more so with catchers at the high school level, um, throwing it back to the pitcher. Is it usually because this is something you hear too? It's right. It's like, well, it always happens to the nice guy, right? It never happens to the jerk. And not saying you want to call any of the players you're working with jerks, but have you noticed that, hey, it's usually like the the, night, the really nice guy that this happens to? Well, they're typically genuine and very authentic kids, right? And as I said, they love the game for all the right reasons. They want to be a great teammate. And that's part of it, too, is when you start to struggle with it, there's the guilt and the shame that you feel of letting your team down. And then if you attribute that, well, maybe it's because I'm not, I'm not mentally tough or I lack the mental fortitude that it takes that can start to spiral into a pretty dark place. And that's why I say, Hey, that's not what this is due to. It has absolutely nothing to do with it. And I don't mean this arrogantly, but I'm living proof of it. And I just say that because that helps release the pressure valve of the kid. It's like, man, you are injured. Just like if you had, you had, um, you know, pulled that hamstring like, dude, you wouldn't be. And that's part of the rehabilitation program. Part of it is battling those feelings of embarrassment and giving yourself the freedom to fail because um, and like if you wouldn't be embarrassed if your ankle was broken and you were out there trying to pitch and you were you couldn't find the strike zone because you're throwing on a broken ankle, and this is the same thing. It's just on the inside and nobody can see it, but the brain's an organ, right? And it is functioning properly. Like I said, it's just perceiving the threat to disproportionately to what it actually is due to no fault of your own necessarily. It's just all of these things come together in a certain capacity through the experiences on and off of the field to create you know, this, uh, this tension and feeling, and it's just a matter of training through it, you know, engaging it, not trying to relax it away, not trying to visualize it away, engaging it, engaging it and working through it. Well, and I tell you what, you're, I've talked to a, a lot of different people about the yips, um, some on the podcast, but a lot off too. And I'd say you're the first person that maybe doesn't have necessarily the, uh, uh, background, you know, the, the, initials but before your name type of a thing and gone to school for it or anything but i like your method more because it just feels more tangible right visualization the tapping method all that i don't know if you're familiar with the the tapping where you tap you know on the forehead or whatever and maybe it. that what's that I've tried it yeah i've tried it too yeah <laughs> it didn't do anything but i think 
just like because you're you're actually throwing with you like you're you're you know living i think that's such a big part of it um not trying to make anybody feel bad here but uh there is a a mlb all-star pitcher not going to name the pitcher the organization or anything he had a bad inning he came off the mound in a big league game walks in the dugout um the mental skills coach goes up to him and said immediately and goes what animal are you right now and the manager found out and he goes like, don't ever let that mental skills coach in this dugout again. Like, cause they just didn't have a clue that there was no feel. There was no, because I'm sure maybe that's just what the book said, but it's, it's just a different, I don't know how else to really explain it. Maybe you just, maybe it's because you can't quantify it. I don't know, but I think your method is the best that I have heard when it comes to beating it. It's realistic. I like the time. I think the time frame is definitely appropriate too. And and you've had the results. I mean, you've had your Tyler Matzik is you could Google him and he's open about it and talked about it and how, how much your, your method has literally changed his career. Yeah. I appreciate that. And yeah, we haven't missed yet. I mean, it's at a hundred percent so far. Um, you know, if we do at some point we do, but, but right now, right now it's there and it's been a little over 20 guys and the, I think experience is the best teacher, you know? And yes, I, I do have degrees. I've got a master's degree in leadership. I don't have it in psychology or whatever, but I've spent my entire life studying myself and others and witnessing others live in extremely high pressure situations from being pinned down in gunfights to helicopter crashes and you name it. And I've seen what works and I've examined that and put together a curriculum on the performance side called the fundamentals of winning and then help channel that mindset training along with the throwing program into defeating the yips. And that is part of the problem on the mental skill side as well is you know, the buy-in from the player, if you have a person who one, never played the game or never played it at a very high level. And again, it doesn't mean that somebody who didn't play can't coach or doesn't know what they're talking about or whatever else, but yeah, like what animal are you? So like, what are you talking about right now? Like, I just fell flat on my face. There's a lot at stake right now. Like what, what world are you living in, man? You know what I mean? So, and there's this kind of real soft approach to it and I, and I don't like it, you know? So um, generally speaking, we had a mental skills coach. I didn't know it at the time. It was brought to my attention later a mental skills coach in MLB while I was working with Tyler uh, called not me directly, but someone else and said that I should stop working with him because in some capacity, don't quote me exactly. Cause again, I was, it wasn't said directly to me, but um, that I should stop working with him because we're prolonging his suffering and it's time for him to move on from baseball and providing him false hope. And, you know, but Wow. He's in the big leagues now and he's a world series champion because nothing has ever happened without somebody believing in it first. And it blew my mind to think that one, I, I don't know if this guy dug into my background at all or not, but if he did, then if he didn't, then what are you doing judging someone's ability to help someone if you don't know who that person is? And if you did, how in the world, and again, I don't mean this arrogantly in any capacity. I'm just passionate about helping kids over overcome this because there's so much bad information or inaccurate information because it's misunderstood. And sometimes that's well-intended. There's really, really good sports psychologists out there. Okay. But, um, you know, do you not think that perhaps someone who has been through the most difficult mental and physical military training in the world performed in combat, you know, was a sniper and ultimately a team leader and then had the yips himself and taught himself how to throw again, might have something valuable to share with the player struggling with it. Right. Um, it, it was just mind boggling to me, but that stuff doesn't bother me anymore at this point in life. It just fuels my fire. 
you know, and to me, I didn't look at it as hopeless. Like, oh, what are you guys thinking? I'm like, look, we got Michael McHenry who can teach mechanics as well as anyone out there, as well as the mental side and has a tremendous amount of resources to go help. And that's the thing on if you're truly good at what you do and you're and you're and you're grounded in and who you are and what you do, you know, you're not maybe arrogant isn't the right word, but you're not so wrapped up in yourself that you can't look outside of yourself for solutions when you don't have them. Right. And that's what like, we're going to use, we're going to work together here. And, and Tyler has all the ability in the world. Okay. If I can help him overcome the involuntary tension and Michael can help him, you know, with all the other things and provide the resources that he needs. And then Tyler was well on his way. Like he was throwing the ball pretty clean actually when we met. All right. And so a lot of this putting it together was him and I, our theories were all in the same way as he was already training himself back to par. And so it was, it was working together through a lot of, then a lot of it was the mindset stuff too, uh, just in terms of general performance um, versus over versus overcoming the yips. And then, you know, he hired uh, the agent that he has now, who's just a phenomenal dude. He came out there while we were training one day and he's like, Oh, I'm in. So we, we put our little team together, man. And we just went forward and his motto was burn the ships. You know, if there's a place to play, I'm playing and we're going. And I didn't see it, you know, the status quo, we'll see it traditionally. Okay. Well, you've been out of baseball for five years and you got the yips and whatever. I'm like, nah, dude, I know how to beat this. Okay. He already knows how to beat it. He's well on his way. We're going to put this together. Iron sharpens iron. McHenry's going to help every which way he can. Now we got the right agent in place. This is going to happen. You know? That's awesome. First of all, Michael McHenry, he's like a broadcaster for them. I love that he's like help. I mean, what a pro. That guy's a pro. I love that guy. He's an outstanding human being. I mean, just a warrior and a great dude and 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 does does it all for the right reasons. I love I love all the things that he's he's mixed up in out there and everything. But man, yeah, with the yips, it it is. It's it's again, it's not that there's nothing to do with mindset that can't help that doesn't help contribute to overcoming it but you got to throw. So we do extension yeah. drills. We do dry fire. We do talking to the tension. We're talking about, they say it's the warrior that doesn't fear death is the most capable in combat, right? That's not true. Everyone fears death. Everyone fears failure. It's the warrior that makes peace with death. That's the most effective in combat with the, with the peace that it could happen. Right. And that's the same thing as we've, when they're out there, it's like, okay, I've got to make peace with this and then switch into that predator mentality but not channeling it into where the ball goes. My visual focus is there, but my mental focus is on having autonomy over my hand as I make that release and to gain that I've got to have freedom to fail. Now, so when you get in that danger zone, those first few throws are mulligans. It doesn't matter where the ball goes. All that matters is backspin and rotation. Or if you're, you know, if you're pronating it a little bit, whatever spin you want to put on it, your, your whole world, the only, that's the only thing I hold you accountable right now too. Is not throwing a strike, not hitting your throwing partner, is doing everything you can, giving as much effort as you can into gaining a clean quality release. Because once that ball starts coming out of your hand properly, one, it's probably going to find its target anyways. But if it doesn't and it sails over his head or whatever, it's coming out clean, it's going to feel right, it's going to feel good, and we're going to work our way into that. But that's the hardest part is the player giving them themselves the ability to do that or the coaches allowing them to have the ability to do that as they're working through those danger zones or those areas where they start to feel that tension and also not putting them in a situation where it's so much they can't work through it, right? It's a little bit, a little bit more, a little bit more warm-ups than to whatever. And then making the jumps as fast as you can and then ultimately closing the loop, our one, two, threes, where we, we keep our thought process locked into the parts of the throw and we build aggression into it 
but understanding. So the emotional focus is aggression, but channeling it into the release. The visual focus is on the target. Okay. And then my mental focus is on feeling that seam leave my finger. So we don't block things out. The more we try to block something out, the more we think about it. Right. So if I say, Hey, don't think about, you know, the crowd, when you're walking up to the plate, you think about it more. But if I say, Hey, I want you to attack the inside part of the baseball. Now I've given them a word of aggression, attack an inside part of the baseball, something, a detail to focus on. And the more it's like when you're, when you're patrolling through a city in a, in a combat zone, you know, there's all this stuff, but then say as a breacher, I come up on a door and it's my, I got to get this door open. Then I've, I, once I'm focused on that, you know, do I need to use an explosive or can I get it open with a tool? I make my decision. I'm going to go explosive. I get a charge up. But as I'm focused on the details of that, everything else around me becomes white noise. Mm. So the way we compartmentalize is not by trying to not think about something. Our minds are always thinking, but we can, as human beings, choose what we think about. And I want to focus intently right here, because again, that conscious mind can solve one problem at a time. And I've got to override the subconscious initiation of that tension. That's why it feels like a grab because it gets, it gets tense right at the last in it. And I've got to override that. And I got to place all of my focus. If we go back to that punch example, it's like, Hey, now I'm going to throw a punch at you. And now, you know, it's coming. And I want you to, instead of tensing up, I want you to stay relaxed and just absorb that blow. Do you think you could do it? I think I could train to do it. Yeah, exactly. If you focused really hard on that and that only, you could probably get yeah. yourself to do it. Right. But you're fighting against the survival instincts that have been are ingrained into you as a human being. That's the same feeling the player has out there. Mm -hmm. And sometimes what we'll tell them, there's several ways to rationalize it. And that's where some, you know, certain things in the way we think can happen is when they're really struggling with that is, OK, we're going to rationalize it right now. We're in that danger zone throwing. I'll say, all right, think of it like this. If I don't give myself the freedom to engage only the muscle group responsible for extending the wrist with dexterity and gain the backspin, then what I'm afraid of happening is what's going to happen anyways. Mm. Okay. So, but if I do, I have a fighting chance. And I, and I came up with that through a story that Michael study, I, I can't remember the specifics of it. So I may have this off a little bit, but it was something along these lines working. There was a player, I think in the minor leagues as they were coming up, and he's all over the place, you know, stabbing. And he walked up to him and he said, I want you to throw the ball 40 feet up the backstop. You know, just throw it into the stands, miss the net if you can. And the player was like, well, why? And he's like, because that's what you're afraid of happening. So just get it over with. And then he didn't need to anymore. He started throwing strikes. So again, that's more on the general, you know, performance anxiety side, not the yips, but it helps to apply to that specific part of how we train through the yips right there. Right. Is and that helps, you know, give them the freedom to fail, if you will, as they work. And it doesn't mean we become apathetic to the outcome. I hate it when people teach apathy, like stop caring. One, it's like telling a fire to stop being so hot. It's not it's not possible. Okay. It's right. just knowing how to channel emotion into the fundamental action of what we're trying to execute, channeling that aggression into those things. And so we do care where the ball goes. But to get the ball to where it needs to go, I've got to gain a quality release. And so I may need to make a few inaccurate throws as I fight my way there, snapping through that release and gaining a little bit more freedom as I throw the ball. Does that make sense? Yeah, a hundred percent. I I um I had Dave Anderson on my podcast who played in the big leagues, um, was really a def defensive first 
infielder. Like he, he didn't really have a big bat. He was in the big league solely for his defense. And he played, you know, eight, 10 years in the major leagues. And he told me a story. Actually, I believe it was, he told it on the podcast. He was having some throwing issues in the minor leagues. And he had a, a coach who said like, dude, I just want you to just feel the ball, throw it as hard as you can. And he said, like, I don't care if it's 20 rows up. And so a couple of times he would he would throw the ball across the infield and it would go in the stands and he'd come oh. back in the dugout and the coach would go, that a baby. Great job. Do it again. And he said, like, eventually like that, that really helped him. And I don't know if it was just kind of like relief that, hey, like, that's OK. It's I'm not going to get yelled at or what. But he said that really changed his career, ended up going to the big leagues and was literally only there for his defense. Yeah. I mean, if you say, you know, you can kind of summarize that and like, Hey, I'm going to give you the freedom to fail that you need. Right. And that kind of helps unlocks that, that subconscious tension and pressure of this building. And then you bring your focus back to just feeling the seam off the finger. Sometimes that's it. I'm like, man, because play, they'll hear me say it, but they're so, it's just so much because they're, you know, I mean, it, it's when you're in the middle of it, it's, you're just spinning out, you know? Yeah. And uh, like, Hey man, focus on feeling the seam come off of your finger and nothing but that. Sometimes that's enough for players, and especially if they throw at distance from, say, third or shortstop, because you can throw as hard as you can. It's more difficult when you're throwing back to the pitcher or the second, first base. base yeah. Several reasons for that. I think that, you know, say like when you're warming up on the line, um, when you warm up on the line and you and you you get in that danger zone, but then you there's guys like, I just can't throw from here to here, but then when we move back, I'm good. Well, one, when we're throwing as hard as we can, we're really engaging – we're really engaging hard, right? We're engaging through yeah. force and violence. Okay. And the player is further back. And as the player moves further back, players tend to kind of spread out a little bit. Think when you're long tossing, guys are now, you know, they're 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 further away from each other. And it's acceptable to make a throw where the player runs over 10 feet and catches it over here or over here. All that without recognizing it. The subconscious is reading it, and the central nervous system is settled a little bit because it's reducing the it's reducing the outcome into something that's more attainable, if you will. Right. So it kind of just, it's that baseline is, is settling down naturally because, so there's things you can do that in that danger zone too, is one, one like complete and total freedom to fail. Right. Doesn't mm -hmm. matter where it goes. Or we envision a circle, say a big circle around your throwing partner and okay. 10 feet on one side, 10 feet on the other. And I'll tell them your whole world right now. Okay. We're going to build into this now is, Get backspin on the ball and get it in that circle. Because what will happen is sometimes they'll start fighting through it and they're getting more free here. But there's also hands in your muscle. If you isolate the arm and there's hands in your muscles in your fingers, like muscles in your hand and muscles in your fingers, and all that's responsible for delivering the ball too. And if those are tied a little bit, okay, and it's and it's not just loosey goosey, right? Like you're just you're just dropping it. You've got to you've got to have it, okay. But if if I engage those properly versus um the tension then you know um, your whole world is just to engage that drive your fingers through the ball get some version of backspin on the ball through the circle hmm. so the not necessarily focusing on like a specific target in terms of hitting got to hit him in the chest exactly and then you know what one kid told me was you know we talked about that and so he developed his own thing and that's the thing of all these solutions in this path one it's not Use my method so I can go right. tell everybody, right? It's use these as tools in your toolkit and shape it into a routine that works for you for your rehabilitation process in verbiage and, 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 and in the way you throw. And it's a, 
it's a template. Now it's pretty strict at first. Like I want you to do this and I want you to try it, but then we can refine it. We can adapt it. There's options along the way. The idea is effective, man. If something's effective, freaking use it. Right. And if something's bothering you that I told you to do, can it, because for whatever reason, it's not registering, uh, registering with you. So, um, yeah. So that other kid, he said, I envision a wall on my right and a wall on my left and I can miss up and down anywhere. I just can't miss left and right. And that's how he started working through his danger zone area because he's like, that way I'll, I'll continue to get backspin. Think of it like this. One time I was, I was working with a kid and he's in that danger zone area is about, you know, 60 feet, just struggling. And we were on an indoor facility and halfway through that indoor facility, we dropped the net down and kept his throwing partner where he was at. And I'm like, okay, now look at your throwing partner and make the throw. Well, he's getting all these real nice clean throws off, right? Because that, even though it's no different, all right, it's just like with that gun. I press the trigger, there's no bullets. I put the round in the gun. I tell myself, do everything the same way. Nothing changes, but you know through your faculties that it is different now. There is an explosion taking place and the bullet is gonna go somewhere. And there's some attachment to that in some capacity, right? So the uh, in the same way, we put that net down and he's good. And then he and then we lift the net up and maybe he's off. So then it's okay, well, we'll net, 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 one up, net back down. Or another kid, he just could not throw with a human being to save his life. And he's pitching now in college well uh, at a top a top ranked D3 school. And great kid, man. And he just really he was he was okay in games really struggled in warm-ups i mean really bad so but he could throw into a net so we started with the net he did his dry fire and his extension drills every day you want to do those as much as you can without risking injury every day rebuild that foundational trust and get that feeling back i mean feel that seam in your hand feel the i'll have players count the stitches sometimes to center their focus like one two three that's where my mind is feel it come off of your finger every single day getting that action back when you walk outside and your hands are cold, you know, what do you do? You lose feeling in them because they're cold. You pay attention to them, you blow on them, you rub them together. So do that. Get get the feeling back. Get it. Then feel that baseball in your hand. And when you're struggling with the yips, it can feel like a bad breakup or an abusive relationship, you know? So like, hey, that ball's your buddy. You guys love each other, man. And you're going to go dominate again. That's it. Feel good when that ball's in your hand and start rebuilding the foundation just from here to here. Shoulders and hips forward, here to here. Get that action back. And you stay there. And you don't move from there until you're good there. And then you start mixing in shoulder and trunk rotation. You stay there. And then you start mixing in the stride. And you feel that lead foot plant. Because when you get yippy, you start to kind of fall into the throw as you try to guide your arm forward. Because you're losing literally losing feeling in your hand. Like it's like, you know, and you try to just kind of guide it forward. Feel it plant strong. Rotate. You're right back to the dry fire position. Finger and seam. Then you start flowing into distance real, real easy. You know, when we warm up, we tend to five yards, 10 yards, whatever. No, just a little half step back, little half step back. And you stay there until you feel good. And you just keep flowing into that distance nice and easy. That's how I teach it. There's variations um, as well. But this young man in the net, what we did was we put a guy behind the net, pretending like he was catching the ball until he mm -hmm. felt good there. And then we started rotating the guy in to catch a ball and then out. And then he'd throw and he'd throw and then he'd rotate in until eventually he was able to throw with a person. And then we started mixing in the environmental conditions. It took him about six to eight months and he got back in a game and just started hammering down. And he's throwing really well right now. And I'm super proud of him. I can't say who it is because he's got potential for the draft, but 
uh, it's so cool to see these kids go from desperation because I, I know, I know I was there to that joy when they get back out on the field. And cause it is a long fight. I do have a solution that is so far working consistently. What I don't have is an easy one. It's a fight and it's not super fast, but it does work. And I'm constantly examining it, examining it to speed all those things up. Right. It's, it's not, know, it's not a get rich quick scheme. Yeah. No, it's, 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 it's like we said, it's like rehabilitating an, an injury, but there's, you know, as I continue to study it, I'm going to continue to make it better and find ways, you know, as I, as I study these players and what I'm doing with them, um, to make it faster. And, and I, and I have, it's gotten from where I started about a year and a half ago to where it's at now, the training program, it's so much better. And we are starting to see a little bit faster results depending on the player, mm-hmm. you know, the kid, a D one pitcher right now, good kid's going to get drafted. And it took us a year and a half and several times, you know, I don't know. I don't know. You know, and it's like, but it's, a, and I tell them that all the time too. Like, I don't care if you play baseball or not. Yeah. It makes no difference to me. And I, and I would never lose respect for you. If you came to me and said, I don't want to play ball anymore, if it's what you really wanted to do. But if you want to play ball and it's just hard to go out there and face it every day, I get it. But I would challenge you to have the courage to stay in the fight because you want to look back at this moment in your life no matter what happens and be proud of who you were and what you did. And I can say that about myself. There was it was really hard to go to the field when this had settled in. And remember, I didn't. We never. There was no yips. There was no term. There wasn't hardly an internet, uh, no YouTube or anything like that. I I didn't know what was going on. And then I felt ashamed that I didn't want to go to the field because I believed in my heart and soul from the time I was, I was a fighter. I'm going to get to the big leagues and I showed up early and stayed late and put in all the extra work. And you know, and now I feel ashamed. Like I don't even want to go to the field. But it was because I couldn't throw. And I didn't, and I didn't understand why. And then it's like, are you mentally weak? And it's just difficult. But I went, man, and I dry up my tears and I'd get out there and I'd go and I'd go and I'd face it and I'd fight it every day. And it didn't work out for me, but I was on a podcast with a buddy of mine who got to the big leagues that I played with in college. And we didn't get along too well at the time, but we do now. And he told me something and he said, you know, I've never told you this, but he said, I was, I watched you go through that and I know it was hard. And you never quit, man. You kept showing up until there wasn't a place to play anymore. And you kept trying. And I got a lot of respect for that. And I'm proud of you for that. And that felt good, you know, and because if I had quit, I wouldn't know, especially before I knew it was a thing. I was like, what it came up. It felt like it came upon me overnight. What if it comes back overnight? And I would be living to this day without that question. But for me, I think it's all about purpose, man. That happened to me for purpose because it led me to another path in the SEAL teams. And at my heart, I'm a protector. I always have been. And having that failure in baseball allowed me to find God. It allowed me to learn about myself, to suffer well and grow in character and capability and achieve more. And then through those lessons learned, I was able, I'm able to turn around and help other people. And that's incredibly fulfilling because we're not always going to be happy. You know, we're going to have challenges in life that are hard and painful, but we can find fulfillment in our pain according to how we respond to it. We got to the World Series, me and my wife, and Tyler comes in and he strikes some guys out and I just bear hug her with tears in my eyes. And I said, you know, I thought at the time the yips was the worst thing that ever happened to me. And it was at the time. But now I think it's the best thing that's ever happened to me because having lived the life that I've lived, I'd rather be here watching him pitch in the game than pitch in the game myself. Mm, and wow. and I knew that. The relationships that I developed and the experiences that I had in the SEAL teams and to really fulfill my identity as a protector and um, 
you know, after 9-11 and protect our country from something like that happening again was where I needed to be. I just didn't know it yet. And now I get to use those experiences and help other players and challenge the status quo of, say, perhaps traditional sports psychology or mental mental skills. And I love challenging the status quo. That's what I live for with Effective Solutions. We're going to keep doing it. And we're going to keep ba- breaking down the barriers until this thing is it, – it, until – it's a system that's in place. These players don't need to, you know, they, they, especially at the pro level, millions of dollars and they're just gone. And then they're, they, they question themselves the rest of their lives. We're going to stop that. Okay. We're going to get these guys on the injured, injured list. We're going to get a plan in place for them to rehabilitate, get their careers back on and save the team from losing their investment. And, you know, I'm just going to keep pounding as much as I can and, you know, appreciate the opportunity to share on here. Uh, some awesome. of those, we haven't gotten into the depth of the throwing solutions and uh, whatever, but um, you know, I'm, I'm I'm out here. If anybody wants, I. I so yeah, J- Jason. What what if someone does want? To, this has been incredible. First of all, I I think this is so beneficial and valuable, and I think there's going to be people who listen to this who at first may not even want anyone else to know that they're listening to this because of the stigma that you're talking about. But I know that there's a lot of players out there who are struggling and, and coaches who want to help players too. And I think this is where this is this is why it's so impactful. And I was so happy we we got to connect and, and have you on. Um, but how would someone get in touch with you if they wanted to work with you or ask further questions? Yeah. So first place to go is yipsfree.com. Okay, yipsfree.com. And on there is a website. And it's got what causes the yips, what is the yips, how to defeat the yips. And I've put as much on there in a written format that I can without writing the whole book yet. Okay. And there's also a resources page where I have put links to uh, podcasts and articles that either include players that I've worked with. A lot of Tyler's, Tyler's interviews, excuse me, Tyler's interviews are on there. A lot of mine are on there that I think are good. Um, and, and read through all that. Listen to those podcasters. One of Michael McHenry and I talking about the yips and we were working with Tyler at the same time. We didn't say his name because it, it wasn't done yet. And oh, uh, cool. I'll, I'll check that one out. Yeah, go there. Yipsfree.com. And then on social media, you can find me on Instagram. It's Jason Kuhn 255 on Twitter and Instagram. And there's links to both Yipsfree and uh, the Instagram Yips Free page, as well as Stonewall Solutions, which is the traditional performance training. So I work with a lot of players without the yips and teams. The problem with social media is that, you know, I work with players every day. I run anywhere from one to four meetings, one to four players each, each, every day. And those sessions are about an hour in length. So I just don't have a whole lot of time to push out a lot of content on the yips. I did at the beginning when I was first starting and now it's just, it's just a time thing, but you can find me on there. Shoot me a direct message. You can find my email on those sites and um, reach out to me. You know, I'd love to to help any way I can and um, get guys on. Awesome. We'll, we'll put all those links that Jason just said on the show notes page too. So in case you, you you didn't uh, remember them or write them down. So they'll be in the show notes, but Jason, appreciate you, man, for what you're doing. and, And thanks for coming on. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's great to meet you. I appreciate, uh, appreciate the opportunity to come on. And um, if I can leave guys with just two, two things, the two things that helped me the most in a big, you know, a big giant training process, but the two things to remember is what I do doesn't define who I am, who I am defines what I do. And the other thing, the number one thing that, that was the foundation of everything else that I did was going back to just feeling that seam 
come off of my finger and focusing on that and nothing else throughout the throw. Of course, we add to that with closing the loop, so on and so forth, talking to the tension to bring it back down. But that's the number one thing. And you it may be enough for some guys right there to, to overcome it. Okay. Awesome. Thanks, man. All right. Thank you. We got it again.